came again as we find it in Psalm 23. In his little commentary on the uh, Psalms, when he gets to Psalm 23, George A.F. Knight retells an old story of how long ago, high up on the Welsh moors, two ministers who were out on a walking holiday came into contact with a young shepherd boy. They chatted to him and they discovered that he'd never been to school. He couldn't read, obviously, and he knew nothing of the Christian faith. So they read to him Psalm 23. And to try to imprint it upon his mind and help him remember the key point, they encouraged him to use the fingers of his left hand as an aid to his memory. The Lord is my shepherd. And they ran through it a couple of times. The Lord is my shepherd. Then they said, when you get to my, to this finger here, this ring finger, take hold of it and grip it hard. The Lord is my shepherd. So they went on their way and enjoyed the rest of their holiday. In fact, they enjoyed the area so much, they returned to it sometime later. And uh, they found themselves in the village at the foot of the moors where uh, they'd met the little shepherd boy, and they asked after him. And they were told there was a very sad story to tell that the winter had come on, and there'd been heavy snow, and he went missing and couldn't be found until the thaw, and there his body was found under a snowdrift. And they said the curious thing about it was that when they found him, he was gripping hard to that finger. They couldn't make sense of it. They couldn't separate the hands for a while. And then, of course, the two ministers knew exactly why he was gripping that finger. He was saying to himself, in that extremity, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, before we go on with this psalm this evening, let me ask you a question. Can you say that? Can you take hold of that ring finger on your left hand, hold it tight, and say, the Lord is my shepherd. If you can't, you're barely at the first step of anything to do with the Christian life. But if you can say that, then certain things flow from knowing Christ as your shepherd And we're going to be thinking about three things this evening. It could have been 33. Confess it's an artificial uh, preacher's threefold division. But we will think of three things. If we know the Lord as our shepherd, we can say, I shall not want. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want says David. There's no two bones, no two two ways about it. And this shepherd, who has everything at his disposal, also perfectly and entirely knows my needs. And so in his love, whether we think it or not, or feel it or not, he places us beyond destitution. But perhaps desiring more than may be good for us, We don't always feel that's the case. We feel our insecurity and our vulnerability 
and uh, we resent our inability to be self-sufficient. But what we feel and what is actually true are not always the same thing. It was so in the case of the complaining and moaning people of Israel. There'd been nomads for 40 years in the desert and they'd often brought to Moses their complaints for more of this or more of that or less of this and less of that. It all depended what it was. And Moses was able to tell them, fed up as they were, complaining as they did, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. He told them their clothes hadn't worn out. I think I do pretty well if I get 10 years out of something. They had 40 years. And their shoes didn't fall to pieces either. Now David, as he's writing this psalm here, is in one frame of mind, but there are other psalms that reflect a wholly different frame of mind when he lapsed into uncertainty and doubt. Sometimes his faith could rise to the heights of Psalm 23 and verse 1. He could write, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And at that time, in that frame of mind, he was confident the shepherd's hand was stretched out to govern his life. He felt safe under the shadow of the Lord. He trusted in God's providence. And if we would only cultivate such a mood, it would bring us deep cheerfulness and profound peace. Gone would be that gnawing craving for something that we can't quite put our fingers on. You know, we, we, we often feel, if only this was achieved, or if only I'd got that, or if only that situation was changed, then everything would be different. We never quite put our fingers on it. And the reason for that is that the Lord knows what we need, and he provides for us. St. Paul says in one place, godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to make a profit? Cultivate godliness with contentment. The good shepherd's kind provision, when gratefully accepted, results in contentment. We learned that from a very good friend of ours who's been with the Lord now for quite some time. His name was Doogie Kennedy. He lived on a small croft in the hills about Glenloy at the back of Invergarry. And Doogie was a prime example of cheerful Christian satisfaction. He knew that in life we may not get all that we wish for, but still with the Lord's loving provision we can truly say, I shall not want. He knew, very often mentioned it to me, that the God who fed the deer and the sparrows and the ravens, caused the pine trees and the rounds to grow and flourish, cared for him too. Like David with his sheep, Doogie saw in his care for his cows and calves, well I should tell you they're just two cows, and then when the calves came along they were sold off later on and it broke his heart to sell them. 
But he saw in his care for his cows and calves a parable of the Lord's care for him. And he knew that that old sentimental poem was very true. The poem that says, When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. But the Good Shepherd's provision, of course, goes much further and much deeper than just putting food on our tables, clothes on our backs, and a roof over our heads. The God who cares for our temporal needs also provides lavishly for our spiritual and eternal needs. And that's why Paul couples godliness with contentment. You won't make the gain, you won't make the profit just by being contented. You have to have godliness. And you won't make the profit and you won't get the gain if you've only got godliness without contentment. The two go hand in hand together. The psalm goes on to say that for those who know the Good Shepherd, their cup overflows. King David and Doogie Kennedy and all God's people throughout history understand that without Christ there is no satisfaction. And when will Mick Jagger learn? That's why he can't get no satisfaction. Without Christ we'll always be unfulfilled. We'll always have a God-shaped emptiness in our hearts. But when we have Christ, we have everything that really matters. Even death doesn't impoverish us if the Lord is our shepherd. So the Apostle Paul put it like this. He said, all things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want The next thing we should notice this evening from this psalm is this, that if the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not worry. We all know that life is not always calm and tranquil. Storms do come our way. They certainly came to our friend Doogie Kennedy. Early in life, he suffered the loss of his parents and then the loss of his uncle, who had been like a father to him. There were many other hardships, but doubtless because of his highland reticence, he never shared them with others. One winter, not long before he died, he went to attend to his water supply, he fell and he broke his leg. And that was a great trial for him, both then and there, getting back to his cottage and making a telephone call, and when it was healing. The next year, Elizabeth and I drove him down to Edinburgh, to see the surgeon who would operate on his heart. But that wasn't straightforward either. There were complications. And doubtless he thought about how he might recover after those operations and he worried when he would be able to return to his beloved Glen Louis. And in the meantime, what about the cows and the cat? The tranquility of his quiet life had been shattered there was much to worry about. Other people might have dismissed them as little things, but of course they weren't 
to him. Not only had the shadows descended on peaceful Glenlouis, but he himself was now walking into a dark ravine, the valley of the dark shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. And I believe he knew it, though he said precious little about it. Once or twice when we left him after visiting him in hospital, we commented on him being alone. But we were wrong. We were wrong. Of course he wasn't alone. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Doogie lived on his own, but he was never alone. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Do you see the logic of that? What David is saying in the most extreme circumstance you can imagine. Even though the Lord is with you. The Lord is with me. And if he's with us in the most extreme place. Well the logic is that he's with us. At other times also. I wonder if you ever noticed that important change that comes over the psalm at verse 4. There's a hinge in this psalm. There's a pivot. And it's at the end of verse 4. Listen. David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then he gets into the valley of the shadow of death. And it's no longer David talking about God. It's David talking to God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for he is with me. No, that's not what he says. For you are with me, is what he says. Very aware of the presence of of God. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy. There's the logic, you see. If that's true, the Lord's with me in all these dire circumstances. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Even when we're facing grim death, the Lord is with us. And even though you don't feel his presence, it doesn't stop it being a reality. Despite our feelings, he does protect, he does guide. He does accompany us to safety, all, that is, who call him their shepherd. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not worry in life or in death, for death is but a dark tunnel through which I pass to emerge into the brilliant light of the Father's house. In 1683, at Ealing, near London, England's greatest theologian, one-time Chancellor of the University of Oxford, John Owen, lay on his deathbed. Beside him, sitting at a table, was his secretary, 
and writing in Owen's name and reading out loud as he did, his secretary informed one of the great man's friends, I am still in the land of the living. Stop, says Owen. Change that and say, I am yet in the land of the dying, but I hope soon to be in the land of the living. And that's the perspective we can have, even on the last enemy, even on death, if we can say, the Lord is my shepherd. That brings us to the third thing we want to look at briefly this evening. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not wonder. We've seen how if the Lord is our shepherd, we won't want. If the Lord is our shepherd, we will be safe. And now, if the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not wonder. A third concern that we often share on our journey through life is having a sense of direction. And when that sense of direction is found, the ability to stay on course and not stray and wander from the path. It's little wonder, isn't it, that the Bible refers to those who do not have faith in Christ as lost. And Jesus repeatedly referred to lostness. He told stories about lost jewellery. It was a coin, but it was jewellery. About lost sheep. And about a lost son. And the interesting thing to note is that what comes across in these parables is that the lost doesn't know that it is lost. That was certainly true of the coin, the little piece of jewellery. The jewellery, it wasn't capable of knowing. And the sheep, marginally capable of knowing it was lost, but didn't know. And even the lost son, for much of the time, had no sense of his lostness until he comes to his right mind and begins to see things differently. And you know, that's true Today, so many are not aware of their lostness. They are lost. They have no sense of direction. They don't know where they're going. They're lost. Came across this perfectly true little story. The little boy went with his parents and two brothers to the nearby city for a Christmas shopping trip. Then the shopping centre, mum and dad suddenly realised that their three-and-a-half-year-old was missing. You can imagine the panic. I can. And so worried, they split up, each taking one of the older uh, brothers with them, and they searched thoroughly through the shopping centre, on down into the car park, but they couldn't find him anywhere. And they were just about to contact security when they saw him. He was standing outside a sweetie shop with his eyes the size of dinner plates. He wasn't afraid. He didn't feel scared. 
He didn't feel lost. His eyes were just fixed on the desirable sweeties on the other side of the glass. And don't we live in such a culture as that? People are not at all aware that they're lost. Their eyes are fixed on the sweeties, whatever those sweeties might be. Those things that detract us and distract us from reality. Now, that wasn't true for our friend Doogie Kennedy. Yes, there were things in this life he greatly enjoyed and places he loved, none more than Glen Louis, but he wasn't led astray by them. He held them lightly. You only had to be in his humble home five minutes to realise the consumer goods meant absolutely nothing to him, unless it was a little model of a tractor or something like that. Because he walked with the good shepherd, he wasn't distracted, he wasn't diverted, and so he didn't lose his way. Twice in this psalm, we are told that the good shepherd leads those who follow him. We read, he leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And the implication in the last verse is that those for whom he has a special care, those who know him as their shepherd, that they will not be allowed to wander far before he brings them back to the path that leads to happiness and to home. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. It's, it's quite a thought, isn't it? There, there's the Lord leading. What's behind? The enemy? No. Goodness and mercy. Goodness and mercy backing him up every step of the way. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord forever. That was a very significant expression for King David. The, the thought of home, the house of the Lord, is a very prominent one in this part of the psalm. And here David makes clear his ultimate goal in life. His ideal permanent settlement was not to be found among the sheep of his boyhood in the desert, nor among the splendors of his palace in Jerusalem, but in the house of the Lord forever. And the irony of it is this, that for much of his reign, David was bent on building a house for the Lord. First Chronicles chapter 17 tells the story so well. David had this great idea he would build a house for the Lord. He'd build a temple for the worship of the Lord. And he shared his vision with the prophet Nathan. And Nathan also thought it was a great idea and told him, go ahead, do it. You couldn't be doing anything better. That wasn't the reality. God's word to David through Nathan was that David was not to build a house for the Lord. Instead, the Lord would build a house for David. 
Now, David's promised house, however, would not be made of stones, but it would be made up of people, his descendants. The house he was being promised there is a dynasty, a dynasty, a royal house, from which the promised Messiah, the promised Redeemer, would eventually come. And they're implicit in the house that God would build for David and the one who would come at the end of that process of uh, preparation was the one who would unlock the key to heaven. So David would find his ideal place, his ideal home, his perfect refuge, his complete security, the house of the Lord. And not for a holiday, and not for respite, but forever. This part of the psalm very emphatically reminds us something that we so often forget. What really matters is not what we do for the Lord. What really matters is what he has done is doing and will yet do for us. There was another time when the psalmist was perplexed. He thought of all God's generous goodness to him and he wanted to respond appropriately. God had done so much for him, he wanted to do something for the Lord. You know how it goes, we often feel like that. But what was he encouraged to do? Well, this was his conclusion of the matter. What can I give to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will take. I will take the cup of the Lord, the cup of salvation, the cup of blessing, the cup that overflows here in, that, in this psalm. You see, that's the appropriate response to God's goodness. It's not what we do for him. If we want to respond in gratitude to God, we come rather like Oliver Twist in the workhouse. And we say, please, sir, I want some more. I want some more. I will take of the cup of the Lord. Perhaps this evening you feel a bit remote from much of what I've been saying. Uh, perhaps you know in your heart of hearts you, that you've been distracted and you have wandered away. Maybe you can see tonight afresh that you're lost. Perhaps it was true that you once followed the shepherd, but you've gone astray. That happens. Don't think you're the only one that ever experienced that. It's not too late. The Bible is full of people who started and went astray. Peter writes about them. He says to some of his readers, once he said, you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned 
to the shepherd of your souls. Note that word once. Once you were like sheep who wandered away. And note that word, but now. Those two words. But now you have turned to the shepherd of your souls. That word once, of course, refers to something that was true. But there became a time when it was no longer true. They had gone astray. But they'd come back. They'd turned, they'd returned to the shepherd of their souls. Well, if that summarizes your position tonight, isn't it time, right now, just where you sit, here in church, for you to do that, to return to the shepherd of your souls? And if you are utterly lost, and you never have followed the good shepherd. Don't despair. You can find him and the road to him because paradoxically, both the good shepherd and the road to the good shepherd are one and the same. And you don't have to go looking. You don't have to go hunting. You don't have to go on some long intellectual or spiritual quest to find the answer. Because the one who is the answer is inviting you to come to him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you've never come before, Come to Jesus now, right here at this moment. Engage with him, meet with him, and know his blessing so that you will also be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not worry. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not wonder. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, let's sing that psalm, Psalm 23.